A lot of us want to eat better for the planet, but we're not always sure how to do it. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. We're here to answer all kinds of questions. Questions like, is fake meat really a good alternative to beef? Does local food actually matter? You can follow us or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, January 19th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Good morning, everybody. Tammy Luby of CNN. Good morning. And Victoria Knight of Axios. Good morning. So Congress is in recess this week, but there is still plenty of news. So we'll get right to it. The new Congress is taking a breather for the MLK holiday, having worked very hard the first two weeks of the session. But there's still plenty going on on Capitol Hill. Late last week, House Republicans leaked to The Washington Post a plan to pay only some of the nation's bills if the standoff over raising the debt ceiling later this year results in the U.S. actually defaulting. Republicans say they won't agree to raise the debt ceiling, something that's been done every couple of years for decades, unless Democrats agree to deep spending cuts, including for entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. Why we are talking about this. Democrats say that a default, even a partial one, could trigger not just a crisis in U.S. financial markets, but possibly a worldwide recession. It's worth remembering that the last time the U.S. neared a default but didn't actually get there in 2011, the U.S. still got its credit rating downgraded. So who blinks in this standoff? And Tammy, what happens if nobody does? That's going to be a major problem for a lot of people. I mean, the U.S. economy, potentially the global economy, global financial markets, but also practical things like Social Security recipients getting their payments and federal employees in the military getting paid and Treasury bondholders getting their interest payments. So it would be a giant mess. Yellen last week in her letter to McCarthy signaling that we were going to hit the debt ceiling likely today urged Congress to act quickly. But instead, of course, what just happened was they dug their heels in on either side. So, you know, we have the Republicans saying that we can't keep spending like we are. We don't have just, you know, an unlimited credit card. We have to change our behavior to save the country in the future. And the White House and, you know, Senate Democrats saying this is not a negotiable subject. You know, we've been here before. We haven't actually crossed the line before. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, one of the differences is this year that McCarthy has a very narrow margin in the House. Any one of his members, this is among the the negotiations that he did not want to agree to, but had to after 15 rounds of voting for his job, any member can you know make a motion to vacate the speaker's chair. And if that happens, then we don't have to worry about the debt ceiling because we have to worry more about who's going to be leading the House because we can't deal with the debt ceiling until we actually have someone leading the House. So this is going to be even more complicated than in the Just past. Just to be clear, even if we hit the debt ceiling today, that doesn't mean we're going to default, right? I mean, that's not coming no. for several months. Right. So Social Security seniors and people with disabilities and the military and federal employees 
don't have to yet worry about their payments. They're going to be paid. The Treasury Secretary and Treasury Department will take what's called extraordinary measures. They're mainly just behind-the-scenes accounting maneuvers. They won't actually hurt anybody. Yellen had said that she expects these extraordinary measures in cash to last at least until early June, although she did warn that the forecast has considerable uncertainty as does everything around the debt ceiling. So, Victoria, obviously the sides are shaping up. Is this going to be sort of the big major health fight this year? I think it's going to be one of the big topics that we're definitely talking about this year in Congress. I think it's going to be a dramatic year, as we've already seen these first two weeks. My colleagues at Axios, we we talked to some Republicans last week asking them about do you actually think they will make cuts to entitlement programs, to Medicare, Medicaid? Is that realistic? kind of a mixed bag. Some are like, yeah, we should look at this. And some are like, we don't really want to touch it. I think they know it's really touchy subject. There are a lot of Medicare beneficiaries that don't want the age increased. You know, there's some talk of increasing the age to 67 rather than 65. They know that it's a touchy subject. Last week in a press conference, McCarthy said where Republicans will protect Medicare um, and Social Security. So they know people are talking about this. They know people are looking at it. So I think in a divided government, obviously the Senate is in Democratic control. I think it seems pretty unlikely, but I think they're going to talk about it. And we have a new Ways and Means chairman, Jason Smith from Missouri. He's kind of a firebrand. He's talked about wanting to do reform on the U.S. spending. So I think it's something they're going to be talking about, but I don't know if that much will actually happen. So we'll see. I have been talking to Republicans on what else they want to work on this year in Congress. I think a big thing will be PBM reform. It's a big topic that's actually bipartisan. So I think that's something that we'll see, which these are the middlemen in regards to between pharmacies and insurers and they're negotiating drug prices. And we know there are going to be hearings on that. Um, I think healthcare cost, there's some talk about like fentanyl scheduling. But I think in regards to like big healthcare reform, there, there probably isn't going to be a lot because we are in a divided government now. Just one thing about people talk about protecting Medicare and Social Security, it doesn't mean they don't want to make changes to it. We've been through this before. Entitlement reform was the driving force for Republicans for quite a few years under when Paul Ryan was both the I guess it was budget chair before he was speaker. I mean, that was the thing, right? And he wanted to make very dramatic changes to Medicare, but he called it protecting Medicare. So there's no one like Ryan with a policy really driving what it should look like. I mean, he had a plan and the plan never got through anywhere. It died. But it was an animating force for many years. It went away for them. I mean, the fights of the last 10 years have been about the Affordable Care Act. So I don't think they're sort of clear on what they want to do. But we do know some conservative Republicans want to make some kind of changes to, to Medicare TBD. And Tammy, we know the debt ceiling isn't the only place where House Republicans are setting themselves up for deep cuts that they might not be able to make while still giving themselves the ability to cut taxes. They finessed some of this in their rules package, didn't they? Yes, they did. And they made it very clear that they, in the rules, they made it harder to raise taxes. They increased it to a supermajority, three-fifths of the House. They made it easier to cut spending in the uh, the debt ceiling and elsewhere. And, you know, the debt ceiling isn't our only issue that we have coming up. It's going to be right around the same time, generally, maybe, as the fiscal 2024 budget, which will necessitate discussion on spending cuts and may result in spending cuts and changes possibly to some of our favorite health programs. 
So we will see. But also just getting back to what um, we were talking about with Medicare, remember the trustees estimate that the trust fund is going to run out of money by 2028. So we'll see in a couple of months what the latest forecast is. But, you know, something needs to be done relatively soon. I mean, the you know, the years keep inching out slowly. So we keep being able to put this off. But yeah, you know, we, at we some keep- point... We keep getting to this sort of brinksmanship, but nobody, right. as Joanne points out, ever really has a plan because it would be unpopular. Speaking of which, um, while cutting entitlement programs here is still just a talking point, we have kind of a real-life cautionary tale out of France, where the retirement age may be raised from 62 to 64, which is still younger than the 67 the U.S. retirement age is marching toward. It seems that an unintended consequence of what's going on in France is that employers don't want to hire older workers, so now they can't get retirement and they can't find a job. And currently, only half of the French population is still employed by age 62, which is way lower than other members of the European Union. France is looking at protests and strikes over this. Um, Could the same thing happen here if we might get to that point? It's been a while since we've seen the silver-haired set out on the street with picket signs. I think it would be pretty contentious. I think if they decide to actually raise the age, it'd be interesting to see their actual protests, but I think people would be very upset for sure. Sure, especially people reaching retirement age have been counting on this. So they probably wouldn't do it like if you're 62, you wouldn't suddenly get it to 67. When they've talked about these kinds of changes in the past, they've talked about it sort of phasing it in over a number of years or starting it in the right affecting people in the future. Right. So, but I'm I'm thinking not just raising the retirement age. I'm thinking of you know making actual big changes to Medicare or even Medicaid. Well, there's two things since the last debate about this. Well, first of all, Social Security was raised and it didn't cause it was raised slowly a couple of months at a time over what a 20 year period. Is that right? Am I remember that right? Yeah. It's I, so I, my my retirement age is 66 and eight months. <laughs> right. So which used to be 65 and they've been going like 65 in one month, 65 in two months. It's sort of you know it's it's crept up and that was done on a bipartisan basis, which of course not you know not a whole lot is looking very bipartisan right now. But I mean, that's the other pathway we could get. We could get a commission. We could move towards some kind of changes after last time there was a commission that failed. But the Social Security Commission did work. The last Medicare commission did not. The two sides are so intractable and so far apart on on debt right now that there's probably going to have to be some kind of saving grace down the road for somebody. So it could be yet another commission. And also in 2011, 2012, which was the last time there was the big debate over Medicare age, was pre-ACA implementation. And, you know, if you're 65 and you're not working, if they do change the Medicare in the out years, it's complicated what it would do to the risk pools and premiums and all that, but you do have an option. I mean, the Affordable Care Act would, right now you only get it to Medicare, that would have to be changed. So it's it's not totally the same. I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying it is a slightly different world of options and the chessboard's a little different. Well, clearly we are not there yet, although we may be there in the next couple of months. Um, finally, on the new Congress front, last week we talked about some of the new committee chairs in the House and Senate. This week, House Republicans are filling out some of those critical subcommittee chairs. Um, Representative Andy Harris, a Republican from Maryland who's also an anesthesiologist, who bragged about prescribing ivermectin for COVID, will chair the appropriation subcommittee responsible for the FDA's budget Things could get kind of interesting there, right? Yeah. And and there was talk that he wanted to chair the Labor HHS subcommittee, which would have been really interesting. He's not. Which would have been the rest of HHS. We should point out that in the world of appropriations, FDA is with agriculture for 
reasons I once tried to figure out, but they go back to the late 1940s. But the rest of HHS is the Labor HHS Appropriation Subcommittee, which he won't chair. Right. No, he is not. Rep. Robert Adderholt is is chairing uh, Labor HHS. But this is, as we were talking about, they're going to have to fund the government. Republicans are talking about wanting to pass 12 appropriations bills. If they actually want to try to do that, they're going to have to do a lot of negotiations on what goes into the labor HHS bill, what goes into the ag bill with FDA, with these chairs over the subcommittees, like they're going to want certain things in there. They're going to maybe want oversight of these agencies, especially in regards to what's happened with COVID, what's going on with the abortion pills. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. It seems unlikely they're actually going to be able to pass 12 appropriations bills, but it's just another thing to watch. I would point out that every single Congress, Republican and Democrat, comes in saying, we're going to go back to regular order. We're going to pass the appropriations bill separately, which is what we were supposed to do. Um, I believe the last time that they passed separately, and it wasn't even all of them, was the year 2000, was the last year of President Clinton. It might have been. It was definitely right around that. When I started covering Congress, they always did all of them <laughs> separately. But no right. And they want to pass the debt ceiling vote. Separately. Right, exactly. So, so not not that much going right. on this year. All right. <laughs> well, last week we talked about health insurance coverage. Now it is official. Obamacare enrollment has never been higher. And there are still several weeks to go to sign up in some states, even though enrollment through the federal marketplace ended for the year on Sunday. Tammy, have we finally gotten to the point that this program is too big to fail? Or is it always going to hang by a political thread? Well, I think the fact that you know, we're all not reporting on the weekly or biweekly enrollment numbers saying it's popular. People are still signing up or under the Trump years, fewer people are signing up and it's lost interest. I think that in and of itself is very indicative of the fact that it is becoming part of our healthcare system, you know? And I mean, I guess one day I'm not going to write the story that says enrollment opens on November 1st and another one that says it's ending on January 15th. So, uh, I think we'll always do that because we're still doing it with Medicare. Well, but I'm not. So <laughs> so it's possible. Although now with Medicare Advantage, I think it is actually worth a story. So that's a separate issue. Yes, but, that is separate. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think it's it's here to say we'll see what O'Connor does in Texas with the preventive treatment. But yes, yeah, so there there will always be another you know, lawsuit. There'll be there'll be chips around the edges. I mean, this course is done. When we all thought that it was that litigation was over, like we thought, okay, it's done. They've you know they've upheld it you know however many times. Move on. But this Supreme Court has done some pretty dramatic rulings, and not just Roe on many public health measures about gun control and the environment and vaccine mandates and, and, and of course, you know, obviously Roe. Do I think that there's going to be another huge existential threat to the ACA arising out of this preventive care thing? No, but we didn't think a lot of things that the Supreme Court would do. There's a real ideological shift in how they approach these issues. So politically, no, we're not going to see more repeal votes. In the wings, could there be more legal issues to bite us? I don't think it's likely, but I wouldn't say never. In, in other words, just because congressional Republicans aren't still harping on this, it doesn't mean that nobody is. Right. But it's also, I mean, I agree with Tammy. I mean, I wrote a similar story a year ago on the 10th anniversary. It's here. I mean, they spent a lot of political capital trying to repeal it and they could not. Yes. People do rely on it and more. You know, Biden has made improvements to it. It's like, you know, every other American entitlement. It evolves over time. It gets bigger over time and it gets less controversial over time. Well, we still have problems with healthcare costs. And this week we have two sort of contradictory studies uh, about healthcare costs. One from the Centers for Disease 
Control and Prevention found a three percentage point decline in the number of Americans who had trouble paying medical bills in 2021 compared to the pre-pandemic year of 2019. That's likely a result of extra pandemic payments and more people with health insurance. But in 2022, according to a survey by Gallup, the 38% of patients reported they delayed care because of costs. That was the biggest increase ever since Gallup has been keeping track over the past two decades, up 12 percentage points from 2020 and 2021. This has me scratching my head a little bit. Is it maybe because even though more people have insurance, which we saw from the previous year, also more have high deductible health plans, so perhaps they don't want to go out and spend money or they don't have the money to spend initially on their health care. Anybody got another theory? Victoria, is you sort of nodding? I mean, that's kind of my theory is like, I think they just have high deductible plans. So they're still having to pay a lot out of pocket. And I know my brother had to get an ACA plan because he is interning for an electrician. And so he doesn't have insurance on his own. And I know that like it's still pretty high and he just has to pay a lot out of pocket. He's had medical debt before. So even though like more people have health insurance, it's still a huge issue. It doesn't make that go away. (laughs) And speaking of high medical prices, we're going to talk about prescription drugs because you can't really talk about high prices without talking about drugs. Um, Stat News reports this week that some of the members of the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee, or MedPAC, are warning that even with the changes to Medicare that are designed to save money on drugs for both the government and patients, those are the ones taking effect this year, we should still expect very high prices on new drugs. Partly that's due to the new Medicare cap on drug costs for patients. If insurers have to cover even the most expensive drugs, aside from those few whose price will be negotiated, then patients will be more likely to use them and they can set the price higher. Are we ever going to be able to get a handle on what the public says consistently is its biggest health spending headache? Victoria, you kind of previewed this with the talk about doing something about the middlemen, the PBMs. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. I mean, the drug pricing provisions, they only target 20 of the highest cost drugs. Um, I can't remember exactly how they determine it, but it's only 20 drugs um, and it's implemented over years. So it's still leaving out a lot of drugs. We have still have years to go before it's actually going into effect. And I think drug makers are going to try to find ways around it, raising the prices of other drugs you're talking about. And even though they're hurt by the IRA, they're not completely down and out. So I don't know what the answer is to rein in drug prices. I think Maybe PBM reform, as I said, definitely a bipartisan issue, this Congress that I think will actually have maybe some movement. Um, We'll see if actually legislation can be passed, but I know they want to talk about it. So, I mean, that could help a little bit. But I mean, I think drug makers are still a huge reason for a lot of these costs. And so it, it won't completely go away, even if PBMs have some reforms. And certainly the American public sees drug costs as one of the biggest yes. issues be- just because so many Americans use prescription drugs. So they see every them day, every day. Yeah. So the good news is that more people are getting access to medical care. The bad news is that the workforce to take care of them is burned out, angry, and simply not large enough for the task at hand. The people who've been most outspoken about that are the nation's nurses who've given the majority of the care during the pandemic and taken the majority of patient anger and frustration and sometimes even violence. We're seeing quite a few nurses strikes lately, and they're mostly not striking for higher wages, but for more help. Tammy, you talked to some nurses on the picket line in New York last week. What did they tell you? Yeah, I had a fun assignment last week since I live in the Bronx. I spent two days with the striking nurses at the Montefiore Medical Center, and there were 7,000 nurses at 
Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and Montefiore in the Bronx uh, that went on strike for three days. It was a party atmosphere there much of the time, but they did have serious concerns that they wanted to relay and get their word out. There was a lot of media coverage as well. Their main issue was staffing shortages. I mean, the nurses told me about terrible working conditions, particularly in the ER. Some of them had to put babies on towels on the floor of the pediatric ER or tell sick adults that they have to stand because there aren't even chairs available in the adult ER, much less, you know, beds or cots. Uh, and every day they feared for their licenses. One said that she would go to sleep right when she got home because she didn't want to think about the day because she was concerned she might not want to go back the next day. And she said heartbreakingly that she was tired of apologizing to families and patients, that she was tr stretched too thin to deliver better care, that she was giving patients their medicines late because she had seven other patients she had to give medicine to and probably handle an emergency. So the nurses at Montefiore, interestingly, they're demanding staffing. But one thing they kept repeating to me, you know, the, the leaders was that they wanted an enforcement ability of the staffing. They didn't just want, you know, paper staffing ratios. And they wanted to be more involved in recruitment. While the hospitals, interestingly, this is not necessarily over in New York, as it probably won't be elsewhere. Uh, these hospitals reached a tentative agreement with the unions, but there's another battle brewing. The nurses' contracts for the public hospital system expires on March 2nd, and the union is already warning that it will demand better pay and staffing. Yeah, well, it's not just the nurses, though. Doctors are burnt out by angry and sometimes ungrateful patients. Doctors in training, too. And I saw one story this week about how pharmacists who are being asked to do more and more with no more help, a similar story, are getting fried from dealing with short-tempered and sometimes abusive patients. Is there any solution to this other than people trying to behave better? Is Congress looking at ways to sort of buttress the healthcare workforce? This is a big problem, you know, that they talked about when they were passing the Affordable Care Act. If you're going to give all these people more insurance, you're going to need more healthcare professionals to take care of them. Yeah. Yet we haven't seemed to do that. Yeah, I, I know it's something that is being talked about. My colleague, Peter at Axios, talked to both Senator Sanders and Senator Cassidy about things they might want to work on on the HELP Committee. And I know that the nursing workforce shortage is one thing they do actually agree on. So it's definitely possible. I do think the medical provider workforce shortage is maybe a bipartisan area in this Congress that they could work on. But I mean, they've been talking about it forever. And will they actually do something? I'm not sure. So we'll see. But I know nursing. Yeah, this, this yeah. spirit of bipartisanship does not seem to be alive and well, at least yet in this Congress. <laughs> yeah, well, between the House and the Senate. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but the, the nursing shortage is, I mean, been documented and talked about for many, many years now and hasn't changed. The doctor shortage is more controversial because there's some debate about whether it's numbers of doctors or what specialties they go into. I mean, and also, do they go to rich neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods? I mean, if you're in a wealthy suburb, there's plenty of dermatologists, right? But in sort of rural areas, certain urban areas, so it's 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 not just a quantity; it's also an allocation, both by geography and specialty. Some of that Congress could theoretically deal with. There's, I mean, the graduate medical education re residency payment. They've been talking about reforming that, you know, since before half the people listening to this were born. There's been no resolution on a path forward. So some of these are things that Congress can nudge or fix with funding. Some of it is just things that have to happen within the medical community of sort of subcultural shifts. Uh, also student debt. I mean, if one reason people start out saying they're going to go into primary care and end up being orthopedic surgeons is their debt. 
So it's complicated. Some of it is Congress, not all of it is Congress, but Congress has been talking about this for a very, 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 very long time. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will point out, and Joanne was with me when this happened, when Congress passed the Balanced Budget Act in 1997, they cut the number of residencies that Medicare would pay for with the promise, and I believe this is in the report, if not in the legislation, that they would create an all-payer program to help pay for graduate medical education by the next year, 1998. Well, now it's 2023, and they never did that. They meant the oh. next century. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're a fifth of the, well, almost a quarter of the way through the next century, and they still haven't done it. So, uh, yeah. and, and if you're on the front lines of COVID, the doctors and the nurses, I mean, at the beginning, they had no tools. I mean, so many people died. They didn't know how to treat it. There were so many patients, you know, in, in New York and other places early on. I mean, it was, you know, these nurses that were holding iPads that people could say goodbye to their loved ones. I don't think any of us can really, you know, understand what it was like to be in that situation, not for 10 minutes, but for weeks and, and, yeah. and, months, and years in some cases. Right. But I mean, the, the really bad, I mean, it's, yeah. it's years. But these crunches, the really traumatic experiences, um, I mean, we've, we've also talked in the past about the suicide rate among healthcare providers. I mean, it's been not just physically exhausting, it's been emotionally unimaginable for those of us who haven't been in those ICUs and ERs. Well, it's clear that the pandemic, as Joanne says, has created a mental health crisis for a lot of people, clearly people on the front lines of healthcare, but also lots of other people. Um, this week, finally, a little bit of good news for at least one population. Starting this week, any U.S. military veteran in a mental health crisis can get free emergency care, not just at any VA facility, but at any private facility as well. They don't even have to be in the VA health system because many former members of the military are not actually eligible for VA health care. Um, this is for all veterans. It's actually the result of a law passed in 2020 and signed by then-President Trump. How much of a difference could this change at least make? I mean, veterans in suicidal crises are also unfortunately fairly common, aren't they? Yeah, but I mean, we have a provider shortage. So giving them greater access to a system that doesn't have enough providers, I mean, will it help? I would assume so. Is it going to fix everything? I would assume not. You know, we don't have enough providers, period. And there are complicated reasons for that. And that's also, they're not all doctors. They're, you know, psychologists and, and clinical social workers, et cetera. But that's a huge problem for veterans and every human being on earth right now. I mean, everybody was traumatized. There's degrees of how much trauma people had, but nobody was untraumatized by the last three years and the ongoing stresses. You know, you could be well-adjusted traumatized, you could be in crisis traumatized, but we're all on that spectrum of having been traumatized. Yeah, well, a lot, lots more work to do. Okay, that's the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Victoria, why don't you go first this week? The story that I'm recommending is called The Last of Us. Uh, zombie fungus is real and it's found in health supplements. It's in the Washington Post by Mike Hume. The Last of Us is a new HBO show everyone's kind of talking about. And basically, people become zombies from this fungus. Turns out that fungus is real in real life. It's spread by insects that basically infect people and then kind of take over their minds and then shoot little spores out. And in the show, they kind of do that as well, except they don't spread by spores. They spread by bites. But it's used in health supplements for different things like strength, stamina, immune boost, 
So it was kind of just a fun little dive into a real life fungus. To be clear, it doesn't turn people into zombies. Yes. To be clear, it does not turn people into zombies. If you eat it, that will not happen to you. <laughs> but it is based on a real life fungus that does infect insects and make them zombies. Yes. So, okay. It's definitely creepy. Damn me. My story is by my fantastic CNN colleagues this week. It's called ER on the Field, an inside look at how NFL medical teams prepare for game day emergency. It's by my colleagues Nadia Kuning, Amanda Seely, and Sanjay Gupta. Listen, I don't know anything about football, but I happen to be watching TV with my husband when we flipped to the channel with the Bills-Bengals game earlier this month, and we saw the ambulance on the field. So like so many others, I was closely following the story of DeMar Hamlin's progress. What we heard on the news was that the team and the medical experts repeatedly said that it was the care on the field that saved Hamlin's life. So Nadia, Amanda, and Sanjay provide a rare behind-the-scenes look at how hospital-quality treatment can be given on the field when needed. I learned that from the story and the video that there are about 30 medical personnel at every game. All teams have emergency action plans. They run drills. An hour before kickoff, the medical staff from both teams review the plan and confirm the details. They station certified athletic trainers to serve as spotters who are positioned around the stadium to catch any injuries. And then they communicate with the medical team on the sidelines. But then, and this is what even my husband, who is a major football fan, didn't know this, there's the all-important red hat, which signifies the person who is the emergency physician or like the airway physician who stands along the 30-yard line and takes over if he or she has to come out onto the field. And that doctor said apparently they have all the resources available in an emergency room and can essentially do surgery on the field to intubate a player. So I thought it was a fascinating story and video, even for non-football fans like me, and I highly recommend them. I, I thought it was very cool. I read it when Tammy recommended it. Yeah. Although my only question is, what happens when there's a team one whose color is red and there are lots of people wearing red hats on the sidelines? That's a good point. <laughs> I, I assume they, they still can find the doctor. Okay, Joanne. There was a piece in The Atlantic by Catherine Wu called COVID Couldn't Kill the Handshake. It had a separate headline, depending on how you Googled it, saying, don't fear the handshake. So basically, we stopped shaking hands. We had fist bumps and, you know, bows and all sorts of other stuff. And the handshake is pretty much back. And yes, your hands are dirty. I mean, unless you're constantly washing them, your hands are dirty. But they are not quite as dirty as we might think. We're not quite as dangerous as we may think. So, you know, if you can't get out of shaking someone's hand, you probably won't die. <laughs> Good, good to know. All right. My extra credit this week is a story I wish I had written. It's from Roll Call and it's called NIH Missing Top Leadership at Start of a Divided Congress by Ariel Cohen. And it's not just about not having a replacement for Dr. Tony Fauci, who just retired as the longtime head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases last month, but about having no nominated replacement for Francis Collins, who stepped down as NIH director more than a year ago, in a year when pressure on domestic spending is likely to be severe, as we've been discussing, and when science in general and NIH in particular are going to be under a microscope in the Republican-led House, it doesn't help to have no one ready to catch the incoming spears. On the other hand, uh, Collins' replacement at NIH will have to be vetted by the Senate Health Committee with a new chairman, Bernie Sanders, and a new ranking member, Bill Cassidy. I am old enough to remember when appointing a new NIH director and getting it through the Senate was a really controversial thing. I imagine we were back to exactly that today. 
Okay, that's our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ever-patient producer, Francis Ying, and to our KHN web team who have given the podcast a spiffy new page. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm still at Twitter for now, where I'm at jrovner. Tammy? I'm at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Victoria? At Victoria Regis K. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.